All right. So uh, Hebrews chapter 5, um, author is still building his case that Jesus is a greater high priest. So if you were able to be here last Sunday, um, we saw the author of Hebrews made, made, sort of made a transition at the end of chapter 4 um, to compare, he's now comparing Jesus to the Old Testament priesthood. And you know the setting of the letter, if you've been here um, you can't have missed it. The setting of the letter is um, the, the person who wrote Hebrews is writing to professing believers in Christ who were tempted to go back to Judaism. They, so they were more than likely believers who had grown up Jewish, grown up in Judaism, who had come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, made a profession of faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Life was already hard as a Jew in the Roman Empire. Now it got harder as a Christian um, because not only did the Roman government discriminate against you as a Christian, but the Jews discriminated against you because you're a Christian. So persecution got, got harder, and they were tempted to go back to Judaism to just make life easier. And so uh, he's warning them against walking away from Christ, but also showing them how not only is Christ better than the Judaism that they left, but he's, he's better precisely because he's the fulfillment of the Judaism that they left. He is, he is what Judaism was always pointing forward to. So, uh, and, he, and he's done that in several ways since the beginning of the book. So he opened the book showing how Jesus is greater than angels. Why? Because, uh, because Scripture tells us that it was angels who were not only glorious in their own right, I mean, most often when an angel appears, the first words are, don't be afraid. It's, they're, they're glorious. In addition to just being glorious in their own right, scriptures tell us that it was angels who were the mediators between God and Moses on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai, receiving the Ten Commandments. That God being holy, Moses being sinful, we'll talk more about this in just a minute, he couldn't just uh, <laughs> go up and take it from the hand of God, uh, figuratively speaking, Angels had to be that intermediate. They took the tablets and delivered them to Moses. We see that in the Old and the New Testament. So uh, that's why he starts saying he's better than, Jesus is better than angels. He's more glorious than angels. He's more glorious than the ones who delivered the Old Covenant to Moses. And then he says in chapter uh, 2 and 3 that Jesus is greater than Moses who met with God on that mountain and who God, whom God used to, do great and mighty things in the history of Israel. Led them out of slavery in Egypt. Jesus is greater because Jesus came. what Jesus came and accomplished was greater than any task that Moses was ever given. Um, in fact, taking the, the Exodus as an example, which was the, the, the greatest uh, task that Moses was ever given to lead a million people out of slavery in Egypt, where they'd been slaved for 430 years. That great, that great act, that exodus was always, as great as it was, New Testament will tell us, was always pointing forward to an even more amazing, more fundamental exodus that was going to come, um, not out of slavery to Egypt again, but Jesus would accomplish slavery out of our sin. That's what it was always pointing forward to. In fact, in Luke 9.31, Jesus refers to what he was going to do in Jerusalem as another exodus. It's crazy. And then we moved on to chapter 4 and... 
The whole point was, he's just going character by character in the Old Testament. Having shown angels and then Moses, now you get to chapter 4, and the whole point was to show how Jesus is greater than Joshua. Remember the Old Testament character of Joshua, who once Moses died, no longer led the people, Joshua took up the mantle, led the people, led them into the promised land. And Jesus is greater than, than that because, think, think what, what, what's the, what are things pointing to? That, that promised land, what, what did God tell them over and over again? If we bring them into that promised land, he promised them, uh, I will be God, your God and you will be my people. Walk in my ways. Deuteronomy, the whole book of Deuteronomy, Aaron talked about this on Sunday night when he preached a couple weeks ago. What does, what does Deuteronomy mean? Uh, deutero is the Greek word for second. Namas is law. Second law. Deuteronomy It's the second law. Why second law? The, Moses had given the people of Israel the law back in Exodus chapter 20 before they went out into the wilderness. That that whole generation died in the wilderness, and now, as they're on the precipice of going into this promised land, this is a new generation of people who were too young to remember or weren't even born to remember when Moses gave it to them back in Exodus 20. So Moses is, is, is here. He's not going to be able to go into the promised land, but he's about to give this new generation the same law that he had given the old generation, and he's saying, you're about to go in this land. Here is God's law. Here are God's ways. If you'll obey it, you'll be blessed. And I will be your God and you will be my people. That was the whole point of this promise. It was supposed to be this land where having God's law, they would find rest from their sins and, and, and have peace with God and they would be his people. He would be their gods. But that was something, the story, as the story goes, that land could never do. They were just as sinful in that land as they were in the wilderness. And uh, the point is that that, that land was uh, supposed to symbolize something that only Jesus could give. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. You know? And so he's just going point by point in, in Hebrews, showing how Christ is, just, is better, superior, greater than Judaism that they were tempted to go back to. And like I said just a minute ago, at the end of chapter 4, um, there was sort of a transition. We just looked at three verses last week, uh, Hebrews 4, 14, 15, and 16, um, showing how Jesus, it begins this section, of showing how Jesus is better. Now the next thing, next comparison, he's better than the whole system of priests, the whole system of sacrifices in the Old Testament. And this is beginning the, by far the longest section in the letter um chapters five six seven eight nine ten i mean all yeah so basically chapters five through ten are carrying this theme jesus is a greater high priest and and greater than the the whole priestly system of sacrifices and and this is the longest section for good reason there's a good there's a really obvious reason why he would spend the most time on this Jesus is a better priest. Because those priests, think, think if you're one of those who were tempted to go back to Judaism in that day. Those priests and those sacrifices were the most visible um, institution on a daily basis, year by year, standing between them and God. Uh, 
and doing what was necessary, they thought, to, to ensure that they stood securely in the favor of God. This priest is standing between me and God. And this sacrifice that I bring him to offer can give me peace with God. That, 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 that is the heart of everything. I mean, the main reason I said that they were tempted to leave Christ and go back to Judaism was because of persecution, um, because they were Christians. And while that may be true, he's going to say, is it worth walking away from your eternal salvation? Even if persecution let up some, and we who live in in, um, posh comfort all the time should not discount that that temptation. Even if it does let up some, though, Jesus would say in Matthew 16, 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Even if, if, if not only persecution let up, but they made you king. What would it profit you if you lose your soul? What, what will man give in return for his soul? And who are the ones, for example, praised? Who are the, the ones who were praised in the book of Revelation who were being persecuted? Who are the ones being praised? Revelation 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony for they loved not their lives even unto death. In both those places, the Greek word were there. They loved not their lives. It was translated more literally in the passage before it. The Greek word soukos, soul. They loved not their souls even unto death. I mean, his point in those both, they walk away from Christ and it's your, it's your, it's your soul for eternity that's affected. It, it, might, it might get more comfortable, earthly speaking. But you're walking away from something eternal. And that's why there's so many warnings in this book. I mean, and next, and next Sunday, uh, just, I guess commercial, um, we're going to look at one of the most, one of the hardest ones in the book. That starts at, at, in chapter 5, verse 11, and goes through chapter 6, verse 12. Those early verses in, chapter, in Hebrews 6 are some of the hardest to understand in the whole book. And um, they're, they're showing how dangerous it is to walk away from Christ. But, the, but, but not the, between all those warnings are passages like the one we're going to look at today. Showing how safe they are in Christ. And we'll see, if you were here last week, some of it may sound familiar because he's still giving some of the same truths that we saw in last week's passage because it's still the same flow of thought that he he had uh, in that passage. Um, What we're going to see, we're going to read this passage in just a minute, Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. He's going to make a clear comparison between the Old Testament priests and the permanent reality that they were always pointing to. So before we go any further, let's read the passage. Um, and then we'll dive in. It's Hebrews, whoop, it's Hebrews uh, 5, 1 through 10. It's not on the screen. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. 
Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for the sins of other people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, quoting Psalm 2-7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, namely Psalm 110, verse 4, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, this is uh, your holy, inspired, and errant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. Um, this is the word of a human author, but who wrote, as Second Peter 1 tells us, they, the, the men who wrote the scriptures, they wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And all scriptures breathed out by you and uh, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we may be uh, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so um, I pray that you would give us grace and favor as we, uh, as we think about this, this, your word this morning. Uh, give us eyes to see the truth. Give us minds to understand the things that are difficult to understand even. Give us hearts to embrace the truth. Give us wills to obey it. Give us all ears to hear it. Give me the help that I need to teach it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this passage is pretty straightforward. Um, not everything is totally simple to understand, but it's pretty straightforward, and it, it divides up fairly evenly. So just two things being compared. Um, I don't know how to make it any uh, more fancy than that. Uh, um, one is it just compared the verses one through four lays out and describes the Old Testament, Old Covenant priesthood. That's that's verses one through four. And by Old Covenant, by the way, the Old Covenant priesthood. By that, I, I mean the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. Whenever the New Testament refers to the Old Covenant, most directly, it's referring to the covenant that God made through Moses, the Ten Commandments and the Law. That's the Old Covenant. I mean, there were covenants before that one. Covenant with Abraham, covenant with Noah, certainly the covenant with Adam. But the old covenant is most often referred to as referring to the covenant with Moses. And so it was this old covenant where the priesthood was established under Moses' brother Aaron. So the old covenant priesthood, describe that in verses 1 through 4. And then secondly, the new covenant priesthood of Jesus, which is the whole point of verses 5 through 10. And he goes, it, it's, it's interesting the way he writes it, because he's going to go uh, point by point showing in verses 5 through 10. He's gonna, it's not going to someone's going to walk back through the, the points he made in verses 1 through 4, walk back through them in verses 5 through 10, only showing how Jesus is better. <laughs> and he surpasses all of those. So, And if you think that this stuff about priesthood isn't particularly relevant 
to you anymore. Don't assume that too quickly. Um, because the reality is, it is just as relevant today as it was to those first believers. And uh, who were being warned against leaving the faith and, and being encouraged to stay. And I hope you'll understand that in just a minute. So let's think first about the old covenant priesthood in those first four verses. And in each, in each of these verses, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, uh, the author tells us something different about those old covenant priests. Um, beginning with Aaron, uh, the brother of Moses. And right away in the first verse of the chapter, he tells us the purpose of those priests. The purpose of those priests. So look again at verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. That's the purpose of a priest. Okay? To act on behalf of men in relation to God. To stand between you and God. To be a mediator between you and God. That's the purpose of a priest. And that is exactly why uh, everything that this passage says and everything that, remember I told you this is the longest section in Hebrews. Chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. That's why what this says and what this whole section in Hebrews says it, it is, that is why it is just as relevant today as it ever was to those first readers because we have never graduated from our need to have someone to act on our behalf before God. We have not graduated from our need for a mediator. We just haven't. Why haven't we graduated from our need for a mediator? Because God has not weakened or changed His holiness. God hasn't moved. And, 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 and the cherubim and the seraphim are perpetually and eternally at His throne crying out with a loud voice that, the revelation, that revelation says it sounds like the roaring of mighty rushing waters. Crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and some of you who've been here for, uh, were here last year might remember uh, something I told you once about the, the Hebrew language. Some of you who are new may not know this. I'll tell you now. The, the Hebrew language doesn't have an equivalent for our word very, V-E-R-Y. So something's good, it's good. If they want to say something's very good, they can't say, they don't have word very. So to say it's very good, they say, they, they repeat the word. It's good, good. And, uh, and by the way, that's, why Jesus very often begins things he says with truly truly I say to you he's saying what I'm about to say is very true truly truly but to say that something is as not just very good not just good good but to say something is as good as it could possibly be they repeat it three times good 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 it's the best right and that's what the cherubim and the seraphim are saying about the holiness of God when they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is as holy as holy can be. And Paul told Timothy that, that God is the one, as he puts it, who dwells in unapproachable light. Not just bright light. Unapproachable light. And he ought to know. 
because he was blinded by that light physically on the road to Damascus by the brilliance of God's holy glory. And he fell to the ground in fear. Isaiah, the prophet, mourned himself and mourned his people when he saw the holy glory of God. God hasn't moved. And we haven't improved our sinfulness. Right? And so it is still as true as it ever was, as Hebrews will say later in the book in Hebrews 10.31, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We talk about God is love and He is, but not to the neglect of that reality that Hebrews talks about that our God is a consuming fire. And the psalmist was right then and still now when he said in Psalm 130 verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? What's the answer? The prophet Habakkuk who said of the Lord that He is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. If we stand before God just as we are, we are judged according to His standards, and we are judged according to His law, Paul says in Romans chapter 3, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being shall be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We have nothing to answer on that day. We are measured by that law. And if we want to stand in the presence of that holy God in my sinful state, if Isaiah says, woe is me, what am I, what am I going to say? If I want to stand in the presence of God and escape the judgment that is rightfully due to me, what do I need? A mediator. And even in the Old Covenant, God was showing us that fact by establishing through Moses' brother Aaron and his family those who would be priests who did just that. They, as verse 1 tells us, they act on behalf of men in relation to God. They stand between sinful man and holy God. And as you come to verse 2, though, God didn't just show us the need and the purpose of, 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 of a mediator in verse 1. As you come to verse 2, He's shown us His mercy through those priests as the mediators between Him and the people. Because look at verse 2 again. Verse 2 says He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because those old covenant priests were sinful and weak, just like the rest of the people, they had no choice but to be merciful priests. Because if someone came and brought them a sacrifice, I, I have sinned, priest, I have sinned. I have sinned with my words. I've sinned with, my, with what I've said. What's that priest going to say? I have too. And so he's, he, he's just as, as it, the word it uses, he is just as beset with weakness as those who were coming to him to offer their sacrifices for him. So they were merciful. And they were gentle with those who came uh, to them with their sins. God was merciful in, in the Old Covenant itself through the law he gave because that law, uh, while it does make the, the, 
the, the reality of our sin inescapable and the guilt of our sin inescapable, he does provide room in that law itself for sacrifices to be offered, which is merciful. But then those who offer those sacrifices are merciful. They're understanding with the weakness of the people who came to them because they themselves were weak and sinful. But that fact leads to another fact in verse 3. Namely, that because the very thing that made them merciful, namely that they were also beset with weakness, also made them ultimately inadequate. Made them inadequate ultimately. Precisely because they themselves were sinful. Look at verse 3. Because of this, he, that is the, the, the old covenant priest, is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. Just as he does for those of the people. You see that all throughout the Old Testament. I mean, the, a, a few weeks ago, I, I had the task on Sunday night of preaching from Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement. Came around once a year. And what did, what happened on that day? What happened in Leviticus 16 when that was first instituted? The whole first half of the day felt like was Aaron, the high priest, offering sacrifices for his own sins before he ever offered a sacrifice for anybody else. And, and the fact that they had to offer those sacrifices again and again, and again, and again, and again, and again showed that neither those priests nor those sacrifices could save anyone. They were only pointers to something greater coming. So, if you want to summarize, verse 1 is, we need a mediator, and here's, here's why, here's what they do. They stand between you and God. Verse 2 was, and in the Old Covenant, um, the priests were merciful. They, were, they, they could deal gently with your sins because they themselves were sinful. But ultimately, verse 3, that's what made them inadequate because they were sinners too. And verse 4 is the final truth about the Old Covenant priests. And that's, that has to do with the origin of those priests. Look at verse 4. It says, no one takes dishonor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was so God decided who the priests and the mediators would be and that's because he he is holy and we are sinful and so we don't come to him as we decide we come to him as he decides if we come at all but also because God when the God set it up like this like I'm going to choose who the mediator is I'm going to appoint who the mediator is. The reason he did that on the, on, in the Old Covenant was always because he knew a new covenant was coming when uh, he would appoint the greater and final and more perfect high priest for all the sins of the people and do what those early priests never could do. And that's what I want us to see in verses 5 through 10. And that is the new covenant priesthood of Jesus. And in the remainder of this passage... The writer goes, like I said, point by point of what he said in those first four verses to show how Jesus is better and that uh, he is that perfect priest they were always pointing forward to. So let's see how he does that beginning in verse 5. Jesus is better in every way. 
And uh, just as he offered four things about those priests in verses 1 through 4, now in verses 5 through 10, he's going to work his way backwards <laughs> through that list he just gave. So let me just tell you what I mean. That way you'll hopefully follow what we're about to look at. So like I said, if you're looking at your Bible, there's in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, there's four verses, and he made four points. Right? Here's their purpose. They are merciful. They are inadequate, and God appoints them. Now, in verses 5 through 10, uh, it, he's going he's gonna, to, as you progress through verses 5 and through 10, he's going to be working point by point backwards from 4 to 1. <laughs> so verses 5 and 6, he's going to address the point that he, the, the last point that he made in verse 4. In verse 7, he's going to address the point he made in verse 3. In verse 8, in verse 2, in verses 9 and 10, verse 1. There you go, and you've got it. Uh, all right, so we're going to work our way backwards through the list. So remember the fourth of those four truths about the Old Covenant from verse 4, specifically that God appoints the priest. And they didn't need to come uh, decide, or decide on their own who would be the priests and who would be the mediators. God would decide who the mediators would be. Well, in verses 5 and 6, they, they show that Jesus is the perfect and fulfillment of that. Look again at those verses. So, verse 5 and 6, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said, in Psalm 2-7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he, as he also says in another place, Psalm 110-4, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the first instance of the name Melchizedek in Hebrews, I'm not going to say much about him today. He gets a whole chapter devoted to him in chapter 7. So we'll save it for there. That is how you say his name, by the way, though. Melchizedek. And these aren't the easiest verses to understand, but it's important to uh, see what he's saying. So let's try to see that. He had just said in verse 4 that the old covenant priests didn't choose themselves. Right? Nobody else appointed. God appointed them. God chose them. And in the same way, he's saying in verse 5 and 6, in the new covenant, God has chosen his own priest again. God has chosen his own priest, and he has sent him to be the mediator for the people. Christ did not exalt himself to this position, but God the Father sent him to be the priest and the mediator for sinners who want to come to God. And he quotes those two Old Testament passages from the book of Psalms, specifically Psalm 2-7, in Psalm 110.4. And to show two things. He's, he quotes those to show two things that I have to say in brief and not say everything that is here. Two things. One, in the quotation of Psalm 2.7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He's showing that this mediator, this, in the new covenant, this mediator that God sent, namely Jesus, was God himself. It was God himself. That's what he means by Psalm 2-7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. There isn't enough time to explain all the theology here, but the author of Hebrews is saying this shows that Jesus is God the Son from all eternity. And it hinges on that word today. Right? You are my son Today I have begotten you. Um, 
ultimately, God is eternal. And all of time, he, he is outside of time. And to him, everything is an eternal today. You know? That's, that's the theology that's behind this. Jesus is from all eternity the Son of the Father. So this, this, this high priest that God has sent is God himself. But then the other is from, from Psalm 110.4 in verse 6, that, that Jesus, this, this, this high priest in Jesus that he has sent is also king as well as priest. He's one, the, the, the very one who rules over the people and to whom they must give an account. This is the same one who saves them when they come to him in repentance and faith. So that's, that's how, in verses 5 and 6, that's how he addresses the, the, the point of verse 4. But then remember how in verse 3, we saw how the old covenant priests were inadequate to offer sacrifices ultimately because they also were sinners who needed a sacrifice for their own sins. Well, in verse 7, the writer shows how Jesus surpassed that. Look at that verse again in verse 7. In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Well, what is that saying? I mean, this is meant to, this is meant to be a description of his whole life leading up to the cross. This, in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications, loud cries and tears. That's, that's the description of his whole life leading up to the cross. He was, in, he was constant in prayer, constant dependence on the father on the father and his prayers were heard but it says loud cry, prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard wait a minute how did god save him from death he died on a cross yes and he rose again <laughs> he rose again he did save him from death Right? You will not allow your Holy One to see decay, as the psalm says. The whole point in this verse is that while is that where the old covenant priests were sinners and, and, and could not offer a true sacrifice for sins, Jesus could and did because he never sinned and the sacrifice was himself. We were told in verse 2 that the old covenant priests were merciful to the people because they were weak sinners too. But Jesus is greater according to verse 8 because he, 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 he's, he's, all, he's an even more merciful mediator for us because as it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. We saw last week from chapter 4, verse 15 that he is sympathetic with our weaknesses. And here it says uh, he can be not because he too is a sinner but because he suffered for us. He was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. And what about the whole purpose of the priests? Back in verse 1, it was they were appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God and to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. They were trying to bring peace between us and God, and they never could for reasons we've already mentioned. But in verses 9 and 10, they say that Jesus did what they never could do, being made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Again, to get the full sense of what he's saying there, you, you probably do need to delve into Melchizedek and, and who he is. and Why does he keep coming up here? 
he's an obscure little guy. I mean, he, he shows up in Genesis 14. Abraham pays tithes to him. And you never hear from him again until Psalm 110. And then here. Shows up three places in the Bible. This is one of them. But apparently it's important because he gets a whole chapter in Hebrews 7. We won't spend time on it here, though, but the whole point being made is Jesus is a high priest superior to those who came before him in the Old Covenant because he actually saves those who come to God through him. Well, beginning in verse 11, um, the author is going to begin a lengthy warning against walking away from Christ. And just to give you a flavor of um, of the difficulty of that passage. The, the, the crux of it, of that warning coming up next week is in verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God of their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Hinges on a lot of things. Are those people, is that a description of people who are really saved? If so, how do you understand it? Those are things we're going to think about next week. And, and that's a stout warning. But he's not going to issue that warning there until he's given them here in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5, convincing reason to stay and persevere in him. He has essentially explained here in brief what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Incidentally, we'll close with this. This is why we don't need priests in the, in the Roman Catholic sense. Scripture never says, Scripture says this, there's God and there's us. And I need a mediator between me and God. I don't need another mediator between me and the mediator. You see? There's one God and one mediator between God and me and the man Christ Jesus. Let's pray.